If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you probably have run into someone who holds the, the same faith in Jesus as you, but has a completely different view on a specific or particular element of the faith. Right? Maybe it's baptism. Do you baptize adults or do you baptize babies? Maybe it's you know, whether or not you believe in predestination or free will. The Lord has provided us with the Bible. He's provided the scriptures to give us God's revelation about himself. He has revealed who he is in those pages. But unfortunately, that document wasn't written to be an academic study of systematic theology. The Bible doesn't just give us a list of doctrines, a checklist of doctrines with point and subpoint under them that we're supposed to follow. Instead, what the Bible consists of is it is the story, the history of God's redemptive work throughout thousands of years in the midst of human experience. It all culminates with the work of Jesus Christ on the cross as found on the gospel, in the Gospels. But it's a story as opposed to a textbook. So as a result, you get many well-meaning Christians who love the Lord deeply, but who find themselves on completely different sides of an aisle, of the aisle on a particular issue. And so this morning, we're going to be touching on one of those issues. This morning, we're going to look at the doctrine of what's called eschatology, just a fragment of the doctrine of eschatology. Now, that word comes from the Greek eschatos, which means last, and ology, which would be like the study of, right? Biology, the study of bio, the study of life, right? Those types of things. So this is a study of the last days, and so we're going to be diving in to look at a number of different perspectives of the end times. Now, mind you, this isn't all that can be said. This is really just one element. I'm going to be reading chapter 20 of Revelation. If you want to start turning there now, you can. Um, But it's really two verses in particular that we're going to be honing in on. So Revelation 20 specifically deals with the return of Christ, the millennium. Now, if you're not familiar with the term millennium, what it is, it's just a thousand-year period of time, like a century is a hundred years, or a decade is ten, a millennium is is one thousand years. And following that millennium, the judgment of believers and unbelievers prior to where we find ourselves for eternity. So I'm going to share four different perspectives that Christians have had over the years, and how they have interpreted this passage. So before we jump in, one caution to us this morning. I'm going to say with confidence that at the end of this sermon, none of us are going to be able to say with any degree of certainty which one of the four positions I'm going to advocate for is the right one. They all have their strengths of how they interpret the text. They all have their weaknesses in how they interpret the text. But here at City Reach Church Swissvale, one of our kind of core values, uh, the essence of who we are, is to, is to create uh, space for flexibility in those things that are not essential to the faith, right? Things that are not the core of the gospel. Many of you have heard me quote St. Augustine. He has a famous quote where he said, in the essentials, unity, Right? Those essentials are going to be things like the, 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 the uh, dual divine nature of Jesus, that he was fully God and fully man, the fact that he died on the cross, that there was a literal, physical, bodily resurrection. Those are core elements to what it means to be a Christian. But he continues, in the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty, flexibility, if you will. 
and in all things, charity or love. So the study that we're going to look at this morning is important, but it's not essential to faith. So as a result, I would expect us as the body of Christ to be charitable with one another as we kind of muddle through what follows. So to that end, if you have your Bibles and haven't opened there already, please open to Revelation chapter 20. It's the third to last chapter of the Bible. Um, and after we read it, you might want to keep it open. Um, I, I'm just because as we, I'm going to refer to it a couple of times, and as we go through these four perspectives, you might want to jump back there yourself and see what it says. So Revelation chapter 20, the whole chapter, verses 1 through 15. Then I saw an angel, this is John, the Apostle John speaking. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it Listen to this description. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they have done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There is a lot going on in that passage. Like I said, I'm going to be scratching the surface. And it's, you know, part of the difficulty of interpreting the book of Revelation is, is the stuff that is written in there. As we see it, are we meant to understand it literally? Is it meant to be symbolically, figuratively? Uh, and, I, you know, is it, does it describe a future time? Does it describe a present time? And present being the first century AD when it was written. So there's all kinds of questions and all kinds of different frameworks that we get 
through this. So I'm going to do my best. Like I said, we're just honing in onto this idea of the millennium. So we need to deal with kind of what's, what's on either end of it. But the millennium is in particular what we're focusing this morning, which is in verses 4 and 5, right? The, the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ with the saints. Now, there's four dominant perspectives that Christians have had over the years. So here's their name. I'm going to give them to you. You're going to hear me say millennium a lot in this, this message. Amillennialism, and I'm, I'll define what they mean. Postmillennialism, and then there's something called premillennialism, which has two various, uh, kind of two, two uh, flavors, if you will. Classic, or also called historical premillennialism, and something called dispensational premillennialism. So without any further ado, let me jump into them in that order. Now, I've got some graphics. They're not perfect. Um, if you're sitting way in the back, you're probably going to have a hard time seeing uh, all the little words, but that's okay. Uh, what's going to be important is kind of the, the big blocks in, in uh, kind of black and white, I think, is, is probably the most important part of this. These graphics are borrowed from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology textbook, uh, and, and my hope is that they can help us grasp a little bit, um, kind of make a little bit more concrete these different um, timelines. So the first is amillennialism, amillennialism, some people say. When you have a, ah, at the beginning of a word as a prefix, it means without or not, right? An atheist is someone who doesn't believe in God, right? There is no deity in there. If you are anemic, it means that you lack the red blood cells that you need to carry oxygen to the rest of your body. And so people who are amillennialists believe that the events that are recorded here in Revelation 20, um, are, are, what would I say, they, they don't describe a future reality, right? The millennium, instead of being a future event, is symbolic of the church age. So you can see that. Revelation, if you can't see under where it says church age, it says Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6, is now. It's symbolic of the church age. So in other words, they believe that we are currently in the millennial season, which doesn't need to be a literal thousand years, which you're going to see that with all four positions. Uh, you know, it might be literally a thousand years, but it might just be describing a really, really long period of time. So what we read in Revelation 21 through 6 is happening right now. Jesus is currently reigning in heaven with his saints up there. And we here on earth get to participate with his reigning and redemptive work in the here and now. Now, one of the major problems with this perspective is how do you deal with the first few verses of the passage that I read, right? Revelation 20. Satan is described as being bound for a thousand years and thrown into this bottomless pit. Right? Do you see that in verses 1 through 3? So if Satan is out of the picture, which is what a, a very simple reading of the text seems to point, is he out of the picture or is he kind of still at large in some manner today? Now, amillennialists would interpret this binding of Satan to be figurative, not literal, right? Basically, it's not that Satan is completely out of the picture, but that there has been a reduction in his authority, right? Kind of like, I, I like to imagine that, you know, you have, uh, uh, that he's entering the boxing ring with one arm tied behind his back, right? He's going he's gonna to get a thumping, but he's still there. Specifically, what follows in verse 3 is what they hold to. Right, that it's defining, it's interpreting what this binding looks like, that he might not deceive the nations any longer. And so in their view, Satan is not able to prevent the gospel from going to the nations, right? going to the Gentiles. 
So what we see in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, starting at at, uh, Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, and what follows, they would say, they would interpret that it shows that Satan's authority has been reduced over the nations, these nations that were not a part of God's chosen people. That it's it's a figurative or symbolic reading of the binding of Satan. That binding took place on, you know, when Jesus was on the cross. It, it, it inhibited him. It hindered his progress. What follows in verses 4 through 6 describe the first resurrection, which to them is not a bodily resurrection, but the souls of the saints going to heaven to be with God. Now, this perspective fits with what I shared several months ago uh, in the Apostles' Creed when we talked about Jesus Christ ascended to the dead. If we view Sheol as this intermediary state, this holding place for the saints in Old Testament times, those who died before the arrival of Jesus waited for Christ to redeem them and usher them into God's uh, heavenly kingdom. So that that would be, according to an amillennialist, the first resurrection, them going to be with Jesus in heaven, spiritually. Now, if you look at this diagram, the church age continues until Christ comes down. There's a little throne there, right? Uh, the, the great white throne. Until the coming of Jesus Christ, his second coming, uh, is, like I said, represented by the throne. At which point, there are several things that all happen in succession. God will bodily resurrect believers and unbelievers alike. There will be some kind of judgment. Those who are found in the book of life go to this eternal state, this you know, renewed uh, new heavens and new earth, and those who are not in the book of life go into uh, the lake of fire, you know, hell with Satan and his minions. And what that does is that removes all traces of evil from God's world. So just to recap, amillennialism holds to a symbolic thousand-year period of time that is synonymous with the church age, where Satan has been hindered and the gospel can now travel freely to the ends of the earth, to the nations until the second coming of Christ. So that's amillennialism. All right, the next image I'm going to share for you is post-millennialism. Now, if you're looking at it from, at first glance it, glance, it looks very, very similar to the previous one that I just said, shared, but there are some very specific differences in it. So it's called post-millennialism. Post meaning after. It explains that they believe that Jesus will return after at the conclusion of that thousand-year millennial reign. Now, what separates these two perspectives of amillennialism, and I'm just going to call it amill and postmill, is that they believe, postmill believes, that as the church age begins to come to a close, there will be this thousand-year period of time of prosperity for the kingdom of God on earth. Right? They believe that the church will gain credibility and it will increase so that greater and greater proportions of the world will become Christians. And since more of the world is Christian, there will be a greater, a more significant Christian influence upon society. And we're going to enter into this quote-unquote golden age of sorts for God's kingdom, right? where people are just going to flock to God. So it's going to kind of ramp, like before Jesus comes back, there's going to be this ramp up into people coming to, into relationship with Jesus. It's a time that's marked by peace and righteousness on the earth, much like what you see in the Old Testament, some of the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah. Now, this golden age is going to last for a really long period of time. Again, maybe not a, a literal 1,000 years. And then the end will come. Christ will return. And when Jesus comes back, you'll have those same activities of Av Mill, you know, that he comes back, resurrection, you know, judgment, entering into that eternal state. So post-millennialism is marked by an optimism of the power of the gospel 
to change lives and transform society. That's a really important piece, that they believe that the power of the gospel can actually transform our society from the inside out. They're going to point to passages like Matthew 13, verses 31 to 33, and Jesus describes, he uses parables, and he describes the kingdom of God in this way. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, right? A very, very small seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make their nest in its branches. And he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, like yeast. I make pizza, right? I use this example all the time. You add a little bit of yeast and it moves through the whole dough. Leavens the entire thing. And so these, these parables appear to describe this gradual, unstoppable move of the gospel in society. Right? What, what came to mind for me was, was Thanos, right? The, the first big, I don't know if you guys like the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He's like the first big baddie that the MCU had. And what's he famous for saying? I am inevitable, right? That, that's like his quote, right? It's inevitable in their mind that the gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth and transform society from the inside out. Now, I haven't gotten to premillennialism yet, but this is a really stark difference between post-mill and pre-mill. Because pre-mill, as we're going to get to in a moment, has a, re- a vision of a renewed earth with Jesus reigning over it in the flesh for those thousand years. Post-mill sees the, the world that we currently live in, but it's Christians who are the ones that are influencing, renewing society. Working with God to renew it, but Jesus physically present in pre-mill, spiritually present in post-mill. So as a result, post-millennialism is largely influenced by culture, by world events. In fact, I would argue at least at this point in time, in modern understanding, it's probably the least popular of the four different views. Sometimes it'll gain traction in times of world or national prosperity. But when suffering hits, or a world war begins, it doesn't know how to handle that suffering in the midst of its framework, and is usually abandoned for something else. Now, one of the biggest weaknesses of this position is how it deals with other parts of Scripture that seems to indicate that righteous culture isn't just going to go up, 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 up. Right? It's not just going to be this ramping up. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, we read it as a small group about a month ago. And it describes this rebellion against God that is spearheaded by the man of lawlessness, elsewhere called the Antichrist. So you have a world rebellion against God, which Paul describes as a milestone for the return of Jesus. And that seems to contradict what post-millennialism teaches, that it's just going to ramp up until Jesus comes back. Similarly, similarly, in Luke 18, chapter 18, verse 8, it's taken just a little bit out of context, but I think the point is here. After sharing a parable, Jesus asks, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? That's, a, that's a kind of a strange thing for Jesus to say if more and more of the world is supposed to come Christian before he returns. So it, it's my opinion. I mean, I'm trying not to... Maybe at the end of this you can figure out which one, I, which one of these four I hold to, or maybe not. I'm trying to be as non-biased as possible, but I will say that it's my opinion that this is the weakest of the four positions that I'm going to share this morning. But I want to highlight it, because there, there, it is kind of one of the main ones that people hold to. All right, the last two positions are both called pre-millennialism. Actually, you know, I don't, I'm just going to put this up here. I don't cite it in my manuscript. 
So pre-millennialism. Pre means that Jesus will come back before that thousand-year reign. Before I describe what separates them, let me share what they have in common. So we'll go off this one. So after the church age, Jesus returns, and there's this resurrection of believers, this first resurrection. We see this. We also read 1 Thessalonians 4 a couple months ago, where Christ calls those who are alive up into the air to be with Jesus in the clouds. That's that, that concept, that Jesus comes back and, and brings this resurrection. And then afterwards, Jesus establishes his kingdom on earth and is physically present for it for that thousand years. Now, at the end of that thousand years, again, maybe not literally a thousand years, but a really long period of time, the last bastion of rebellion against God is mustered and God provides a a final and declarative victory before everyone enters into the the eternal state. So some of the distinctives distinctives of this particular position. So believers, this is kind of interesting, believers have glorified bodies during that thousand-year reign and continue to live alongside non-believers, right? Because the judgment for non-believers doesn't happen until at the the end of that millennium, right? When you have that great white throne. There's a time of of peace and prosperity during this reign because, like, unlike the Amil perspective, right, Satan is completely out of the picture. It's It's a much takes those first three verses that describe the binding of Satan in a much more simplistic, kind of a simple reading, if you will. Right? He's, he's out of the picture for those thousand years and is only released at the very end to wage war against Christ and ultimately lose. Now, where these two positions diverge, and I'll show you here on, on the screen if you can see it, is on the return of Jesus Christ. So classic premillennialism teaches that there is something called a tribulation, Right, kind of this uptick, a heightened sense of persecution against Christ's church by the world, and it culminates with Christ's return. So you see that, that big capital T next to church age. That signifies the tribulation. That's the end of the church age, is marked by the tribulation, and then Jesus comes back after it. So the, the, the catching up of, uh, of believers is viewed as immediate, right? Jesus catches them up and then returns to establish his, his uh, uh, earthly reign on earth. Now, dispensational premillennialism, I'm going to switch here. You could see that T moves in between those up and down arrows, right? They teach what is called a pre-tribulation rapture, that Jesus comes back, calls away the saints, sparing them from what comes next, this, this uh, tribulation. And then you have this seven-year period of time, which is the tribulation, and at the end of those seven years, Christ returns to establish his kingdom here on earth. Now, you might not think, like, that's not a big difference, right? What's seven years in the grand scope of of world history? But it's really important to note that they come from very, very different theological foundations that I think is quite fascinating. So this one, dispensational theology, uh, really came to prominence in the 19th and 20th centuries, and it focused a lot on the nation-state of Israel, especially geopolitically. You see, dispensational theology likes to treat prophecies literally where possible. And so there's all of these Old Testament prophecies which spoke to the future glory of Israel that dispensationalism wants to apply directly to Israel, whereas Reformed traditions, other traditions might kind of grandfather the church in them, right? We are the spiritual seed of Abraham. We are the, you know, as the church, we are the spiritual Israel, And so they have no problem applying those prophecies to the church. 
But dispensational theology wants to keep it literally and, and focus on Israel again. And so this, this rapture, which is the word that they, they use to define this arrow pointing up, is really important because um, the church, in their view, is actually the, the parentheses in God's plan. It's kind of like this tangent where God hit the pause button with Israel to focus on growing his church. I had a friend in seminary who put it this way, right? So if you, I know you don't all watch football, but we'll just say, I mean, football season's starting here. It's what's on my brain. You have a quarterback that comes to the line, right? Ben Roethlisberger for the Steelers. He comes to the line. And he's got a, you know, a deep ball planned, but he needs time to throw a deep ball. And he can tell there's a blitz coming, right? That the, that the defense is going to throw as many men as possible to him. You might hear him go under the center and, and yell something, and then people start moving, it's what's called an audible, where he's changing the play kind of at the line of scrimmage, right? Instead of a deep pass where he's going to need time, he wants to throw a real quick pass so he can get out of his hands quickly before the defense gets to him. That's, that's, that's what an audible is. And so in, in dispensational theology, in many ways, the church was God's audible. It wasn't the original plan to, to have the church. It was for Israel to be established and to be the light to the nations. But because Israel crucified Jesus, we, we kind of went on this tangent, and so as a result, the rapture is important to end times theology because it removes the church. It removes the saints under the New Testament from the picture, and it allows God to return to his interactions with the Hebrew people, namely Israel. So it's kind of like the rapture is kind of like God hitting unpause. And so getting to the physical reign of Christ on earth is where these two, you know, classic or historical and, and um, dispensationalist pre-mill diverge, but once you get there, it's, it's pretty much the same. Now, in my opinion, one of the primary weaknesses of, of premillennialism is how they handle that reign of Christ. When I was in college, I read the Left Behind series. It's a really famous uh, fiction, a collection of fiction books which follows this dispensational thread of, of uh, premillennial thinking uh, of the end times. Some of you may have read the books or seen the movies that starred Kirk Cameron, and then they tried to reboot it with Nicolas Cage. The 12-book series tracks these non-believers who are left behind. The rapture happens, and then they're, they're just kind of there, and like, why did everybody disappear? And so kind of through this, they become Christians, and they suffer persecution for their faith, and, uh, you know, until the time that Jesus comes back. And, and it ended, the 12-book series ended with the book, The Glorious Appearing, which kind of which ended that tribulation period. That was the last book of, of the series that I read. But I remember being at um, a book, bookstore, I think it was called Borders in my hometown, and seeing a new book that Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye had written, uh, and it was called Kingdom Come, The Final Victory. And it, it's meant to be written at the end of this thousand-year reign. And, and this is what the back cover read. I quote, Not all is well in utopia. So, that struck me as odd when I read that. Because if it's utopia, if Christ is physically reigning, how could all not be well in that place? And so, you know, Jesus has already come, the second coming, to kind of launch his, the millennium. But now he has to muster himself up for war a third time to put that final nail in the coffin. So even though pre-mill, a pre-mill perspective fits better with a simple reading of Revelation 20, it doesn't always align with the rest of Scripture, which seems to point that Christ's second coming is the establishment of the fullness of God's kingdom in our world. Right? The, the, the rest of the Bible doesn't usually teach of an interme intermediary kingdom 
that Christ established and then has to win another victory over later. So as you can see, like all four of these positions, none of them are perfect. They all have kind of some, some issue with them. And, you know, the different perspectives, they're going to they're gonna rationalize and kind of interpret their, their ways so that it makes sense. So again, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to slam all of them. So those are the four basic positions that people hold to. So what? What is the point in me sharing all of that? There have been plenty of faithful followers of Jesus Christ who have clung to radically different positions on the end times. And you know what? There are churches that have split over these differences of how people have read. My goal this morning is not to tell you what to believe or what not to believe. I just wanted to try to give you as succinctly as I can the differing interpretations. And there's so much more that could be said. I'm trying to cram like, you know, uh, 40 pages in a systematic textbook into like a 30-minute sermon. Um, and so it's, there's definitely things that I, I had to leave out. And I'm sorry if it was just like you feel like you're drinking out of a fire hose right now. But I wanted to share these interpretations. I wanted to share some of the weaknesses. Somewhat tongue-in-cheek, I want to say that there's a fifth perspective of the millennialism, millennialism that I want to advocate for. I might be what you call a pan-millennialist, that it's all going to pan out in the end. Get that? Yeah. What we can gather from this is we don't have certainty of exactly how this is going to play out. While there have been disagreements over the timing and manner of Christ's return, faithful Orthodox Christians throughout the ages have all agreed that he's returning. They agree that a judgment follows. They agree on the life everlasting following it. All four of these perspectives believe that Jesus is going to come back in the end and set the world right. Maybe it'll be in our lifetimes, maybe not. He's waited 2,000 years to come back. <laughs> What's another 2,000 years to the Lord? But two days to create, you know, follow an equation in Scripture. As a result, this exercise is really more of an abstract exercise for us. It's probably not, it could, but it's probably not going to affect our day-to-day -day lives in the gospel. Whether we hold to a post-mill or pre-mill perspective, what the book of Revelation teaches us is to hold fast to the good news of Jesus Christ through, through thick and thin. Whether we're going through a time of prosperity like the post-mill perspective believes or whether it's a time of tribulation and suffering like pre-mill advocates for. The point is, our hope is not in a specific doctrine of the church. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. Remember that these intellectual exercises are important, but they are not essential to the faith. There's nothing wrong with putting time and study into doctrines like this. But may that study, I mean, people have spent countless hours reading and trying to dissect the book of Revelation to put, you know, theology in place. But may those exercises, and there's nothing wrong with that, but may those exercises never distract us from the core of the gospel. That Jesus Christ died to save us. That his Holy Spirit is right now transforming us from the inside out and that he is indeed coming back to set everything right. 
We need to be prepared to live into that hope regardless of what we face. But I have known plenty of people who are so academic in their study of theology, they can spout off all of the right Bible verses. They've put a lot of attention to detail in thinking through those things. But you know what? They haven't given the same level of detail to focus on their inner self. It's not wrong to look ahead at what God might do in history, but don't let that lull you into a place where you never look at what God is doing inside of you right now. May these things not distract us from what God wants to show us now, how we ought to love God with more of our beings and how we ought to love our neighbor as ourself. Amil, post-mill, pre-mill, they're not the gospel. One of them is right or none of them is right. We don't know. Maybe there is a fifth position out there that is actually right or they all have some, some you know, hint or glimmer of truth in them. But when we get in front of that, that great white throne of Jesus, he's not going to... The, the, uh, the question that helps him decide that judgment isn't, what perspective of the millennium do you have? It's, is your name written in the book of life? And the only way that you get your name written in the book of life is by trusting that in Jesus Christ, his sacrifice, sacrificial death on the cross... Right? It's interesting how that passage says it, right? Because it kind of sounds like work, works righteousness. Anyone whose found, name was found in the book of life, which basically says all the good things that you did. Well, I don't get my name in the book of the life by doing all kinds of good stuff. I get my name in the book of life by trusting in all the good stuff that Jesus did on my behalf. So there we go. I just want to encourage us that as we go from this place... Man, study the word, study it carefully, but don't let it distract you from the the more important renovations of the heart that God wants to do in you right here and right now. Let me pray. Lord, you love us. You have called us. You have given us your word. May we take joy in digging into it, but may we never take for granted our own positions, our own biased readings of the text. May we understand that we are not you. Recognizing, holding our own positions with a grain of salt, but taking those really core nuggets, Lord. And so in this, as we've looked at the end times, we've looked at kind of all the, uh, not exhaustively, but all the different perspectives that are out there, may we just be reminded of the truth that we are judged by what whether or not we put our trust in you, and that in the end that you're coming back. May we hold fast to that. In Jesus' name, amen.